And we're back. This is episode 19 of This Should Work and the second part of the This Should Work educational makerspace series. Uh, Last week, we interviewed Aaron Hoover uh, from Olin College. And this week, we're talking with two of my favorite people at DePaul University. Uh, Number one is Terry Steinbach, who's an associate dean in the College of Computing and Digital Media and helps support all of the makerspace initiatives we have here at DePaul. And the second person is Betty Shanahan, who is the Associate Vice President of DePaul University and has been critical, instrumental in getting our makerspace initiatives um, off the ground and moving forward. So I really enjoyed this interview. I hope you do too. Um, As always, if you're enjoying, loving This Should Work, please comment on our uh, iTunes page, like and subscribe, share it with your friends, all that good stuff, and check us out at shouldworkmedia.com. Okay, without further ado, here's our interview with Terry Steinbach and Betty Shanahan. All right, so this is This Should Work, uh, episode 19 now, and I am here with Terry Steinbach and Betty Shanahan who are respectively academic leadership and administrative leadership here at DePaul University. Uh, I've been working with Terry and Betty for the last, oh, six months, maybe more, maybe less, around that time frame, um, on building uh, a new makerspace that we just announced at DePaul, so a second makerspace, um, as well as some other interesting projects that are are not quite ready yet, but um, are are in the works. So thank you both for for joining, and uh, I'm looking forward to this today. So am I. Me too. Yay. Okay. So the way that I typically start this uh, each interview is um, by asking the person that I'm talking with, what is it that they're making um, right now outside of work just for themselves? And the reason that I ask that is because oftentimes I find that a lot of people um, that I interview at least, um, maybe it's the reason I'm drawn to them, are not making a lot of things for themselves and they do a lot of work for other people. But is there something that you're working on right now uh, that you're building that, that is, is, is just for you or as close as you can get to just for you? And I guess we'll just start with Terry and then go to Betty. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would consider myself a craftsperson rather yeah. than a maker because yeah. I've been doing this for probably 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out when I was a kid refinishing furniture mm. and adding to it and fixing it. Um, and so from that beginning, I moved into um, more sewing and uh, crafting needlework, you know, all hand work, not machine work. Yeah. So the thing I'm doing now is I've discovered quilting by machine. Oh. I've always quilted by hand before. Yeah. Um, and so now I've taken up piece quilting okay. using my machine. And so I bought myself a new sewing machine and a new embroidery machine. Okay. So I am doing those two things for myself because most of my time is spent doing things for others, <laughs> like yeah. my grandchildren right. um, and my friends and family. I host a craft day every quarter yeah. where friends and family come to my house and I create a project that we all do together and then it's, huh. you know, social and fun and family and yeah. friends. and. So we, uh, we just have a good time and everybody learns a new skill and gets to take something home with them. So why quilting by machine? 
What's what is it about the machine that suddenly got you in? in you know, I've never in? been able to conquer <laughs> the sewing machine. Oh. I started sewing um, back in seventh grade when it was called home economics, and all sure. women or girls mm -hmm. had to take home ec because we weren't allowed to take shop. And oh really? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. Okay, so we're, you know. I'm just a millennial, so I don't understand how <laughs> So we're talking late 1960s. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so um, our first sewing project was a jumper. And um, needless to say, my jumper did not turn out all that great. <laughs> and I constantly um, jammed the machine and the bobbin, and I just took a hands-off approach after that. Okay. So now... Let's see, that was 1968, so now, what is that, 50 years later, <laughs> I um, decided I'm conquering machine sewing now. Okay. So, it's been fun. A um, little intimidating at first, because, you know, I was afraid I was going to break my new machine, um, but, and I have broken it, <laughs> and you know what, you just take it in, tell them what you did, and they fix it, so it works out really well. I want to re I want to revisit some of that a little bit later because I, I you said a couple things that are interesting about you consider yourself a craftsperson, not a maker, and there's some t like a an interesting tension there, um, and uh, talking about home economics and shop and things like that. But I want to how about you, Betty? How about you? What's what are you doing? Do if anything? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I think maybe the interesting parallel is uh, traditionally uh, women's expression comes in the form of fiber arts, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm coming up on five years since I took my first weaving class and obsessed is probably putting it lightly as a weaver mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's a part of me that is an engineer and a, a maker in parallel to that so I pretty much have two projects going on right now mm -hmm. one is I am building for myself out of like a, a door from Menards I'm waiting to be able to have a day where I can rent the Menards truck and move the door and I've got some uh, shelving to make a really large work surface that would be great for a quilt, just a really uh, uh, 80 inch by uh, oh. 48 inch yeah. uh, nice. Works, nice yeah. high work surface uh, uh, for working on anything fiber, but uh, you know, just general uh, workspace. And but on the weaving side, I have uh, two projects. I have two floor looms, two projects that are just the uh, warps going on. So one's uh, gonna be a set of pillows for some new couches we have, and the other's gonna be some uh, lace curtains. Uh, oh, nice, yeah. okay. So why do that rather than buy, uh, you know, you could go out at Walmart or something like that, I'm sure, and solve this problem. What's the, why Why do that? Uh, why choose choose that as a, as a mode of expression or? Uh, to, to some extent, I yeah. think it's a bit of art for me. I sort of jo have joked that weaving, when I first discovered weaving, weaving is like art for engineers because, again, you're working with a machine, and uh, I feel that the, the loom has an amazing ability to take a novice like myself because although I've been doing it for five years, I don't have a lot of time to do it because it's right. you know, in my spare time and I'm working. But uh, it gives uh, the ability for someone who is uh, maybe not a good technician to have a huge amount of expression that other fiber arts like knitting and that really uh, uh, are very slow in building up your, your capabilities there. But the, the, right. the, the machine helps you do that. And uh, I just love the design process and I, I probably spend more time designing things I never build just for the challenge of designing yeah. things. 
right. and all the different um, structures you can have. And then there's also the fun of just making exactly what you want. So to some extent, my projects are uh, designed to fit a space very specifically, but they're also designed to let me try something new. So mm -hmm. that uh, in both cases, I'm using working with new structures that I haven't done before. So is it is it more about the if you were to place any any weight on on because there are two things you just said. One is you do it for the challenges. It sounds to me like really it's process. It's mm -hmm. interesting because of process. And then but but also then you mentioned getting exactly what you want, which is outcome. Yeah. So if you were to like tell if what's more important to you when you're working on those projects if, if there is yeah it's, I think it's hard to say because yeah. you, I think the beauty of having so much flexibility is you can meld the two so in right. terms of exactly what I want there's you know seemingly infinite numbers of fibers that you can pick from you know right. the, in terms of what the material is what the color is what the size is so uh, uh, you you just pick what's going to look perfect there but at the same time with uh, with process there's many different ways to get to a solution. So I'm able to uh, pick something that I think will be interesting. I, I listen to a lot of weaving podcasts as I walk to work, mm -hmm. and I listened to an interview with a woman named Chen Chu, who is a uh, uh, master weaver, but actually okay. a mathematician by background. Yeah. And she was talking about how uh, what she loves about weaving is the uh, as opposed to some people say, oh, the, I love knitting because I can be watching TV and knitting. With weaving, you, if, especially if you're working with complex structures, you need to be focused and concentrating. Mm -hmm. So a large part of the process there yeah. is really that flow of being yep. in that flow and uh, concentrating, the world goes away. Uh, and when I joke it's art for engineers, I feel very much back in my design days, it was, you know, if I was doing uh, yeah. a design of a, a circuit, yeah. it was that same focus, you lose time, sense of time. Mm -hmm. And, but the, the real beauty of it is you spend, a, you know, a couple hours and you see these inches that right. from mm -hmm. Pierre too. So you, you, get a, you get an outcome satisfaction, yeah. but you get that whole, you know, just focused on the process. There's something related to um, flow state um, called the zone of proximal development, which uh, is uh, Vygotsky, I think. Uh, it's a Russian, it, I'm trying to say it right. Um, and it, it kind of related to what you guys are talk, both talking about, it, which is like you have this inner zone, mm -hmm. and the inner zone is like things that you are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that zone is things that other people can help you with. Mm -hmm. but you need assistance to it. And then outside of that is just like a, a realm that, you know, is, is, is beyond um, your capabilities right now. And when we, um, when I hear people talking about the projects that they're working on, it's almost like you're, um, so it's a, so it's a th three circles, right? But you can move in any direction to get mm -hmm. towards, you know, that next mm -hmm. level, which is you need help with somebody else. And so it's like if you have an interest in engineering um, or, or mathematics, you, you don't have to work on a math problem necessarily to, to move, to, to gain greater competency in that area. You can work on it by doing something like weaving, for instance, mm -hmm. because it's still moving outside of that zone, but it's in a different, you know. And I, I think that's how direction. we get um, yeah. girls interested in, mm -hmm. in STEM yeah. um, topics because. 
um, you can do so many fun things while you're you know, creating, while you're learning about it, and it doesn't seem like you're really learning, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. disguised as a fun activity, yeah. you know. So um, I've done wearables with my grandkids, mm -hmm. right? You know, and so they learned a they learned how to sew and they learned how to solder and they learned how to put a circuit together and right. Um, but then they got to do the outside part too. So first they did the internals and then their creative side came out and they didn't even mm -hmm. realize they were learning right you know until they were telling another friend about it what they made right. and you know just to listen to them and the excitement they were just as excited about what they built yeah. as yeah. how they decorated it outside and yeah. the society of women engineers signature outreach program is called invented build it mm -hmm. and it's that that whole concept of you know you can, you can create it you don't even realize that you're doing engineering right you're, you're inventing right. things and building things and you feel good about you know the excitement of uh, you created it. So what's interesting about that to me is that um, right at the outset, b both of you were talking about like a home, traditional home ec classes, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe uh, there's a distinguishment between uh, crafts and, and making. But it sounds like at the same time these things are um, are inter intertwined in in a way. And I was wondering if you guys could talk about that a little bit. What's the because there is a dramatic amount of overlap, and we're, we're going to get to talking about the you know the, the labs that we have here at DePaul, but we have sewing and embroidery machines right next mm -hmm. to 3D printers there, and it, that's for that's intentional. Um, and so, it, it, how do you reconcile these two things that are seemingly different, but also uh, in in many ways the, the same? <laughs> I, I I wonder if you're uh, and I'm not getting maybe yeah. out of my area, but I'm wondering if your area, if your comments are starting to be uh, gendered terms too. Mm, interesting. That is crafts more comfortable term for girls and women because it's what we grow up with. That's interesting. That's interesting because um, so, so craft means a lot of different things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like the arts and crafts movement mm -hmm. um, uh, was actually. Uh, started in a in response to industrialization, right? So uh, everything was industrialized and made, no, no longer handmade, and then there was a movement that pushed back against that. So when I hear that, to me, I think of it as like a philosophy almost. You also have craftspeople, right, mm -hmm. or craftsmen, which has another kind of implication. So what is what is what does craft mean to both of you? And does it have anything to do with what we're doing in these maker spaces, for instance? I think craft to me has been more of a um, way to express yourself, mm -hmm. hmm. where you get to choose what you're doing or and how you want it to look or what you want it to do, hmm. um, which I think it's the um, precursor to making mm -hmm. now. So mm. I would, and I think this might be a generational thing. Yeah. Mm. Right? I'm 62. It's all right. <laughs> so when I, making was not in the vocabulary yeah. when yeah. I was a kid. Right? Sure. It was crafting, you, you know, or refinished furniture or, you know, it just, it's a whole different language now. Mm. And I think it's, crafting is maybe more focused on the process than the outcome. Like I mm. can, I can pick up crafts without a sense that it has to be something that has high value okay. in society or to anybody. Mm -hmm. right. So if I, you know, if, if I do crafts with somebody mm. and the outcome isn't anything special, that's that there's not the same kind of outcome as opposed to I'm building something and I'm... Yeah, I'm sure. 
And I think more more goes into crafting than just building. It's the whole community, mm-hmm. right. the whole socialization factor, the exchanging of knowledge mm-hmm. and ideas. Yeah. So I think that part has changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good lead-in then to I think what we're doing here at DePaul, which it seems to me if we're going to adopt you know this language of of, of craft and, and making for our conversation, um, we're doing not one even though it's called a, a makerspace. Uh, we, we embody the, the best of, of all of these things, right? Because, um, you know, our students aren't necessarily focused on outcome immediately. And, and in fact, that, that's detrimental to, to creative process. Um, and, and yet, uh, there is this technocratic element of the space that lends itself more towards this maker idea. Mm-hmm. So what is, so this is a question that I'm asking, even though I already know the answer, but what is it that we're doing here at DePaul um, that, that you all think sets us, uh, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about what we are doing at DePaul. So what, what do we have here right now? So a year and a half ago, we opened um, the Idea Realization Lab, yeah. the IRL, which the students named. So our makerspace at DePaul is uh, student-led, student-organized, student-run, everything focuses around student and community. I think that's what makes us so um, distinctive from other spaces at um, different universities and high schools. We're a liberal arts school, and it's unusual to have a makerspace in a liberal arts school. So I think some of the things that we we do differently is that, A, we're in Chicago's loop. There isn't a lot of community space for our students, so this has become a second home to many of them. Um, so even if they're not making anything at the moment, they're still in the space because they're very comfortable there. It's where they find their friends and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that makes us very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the range of opportunities for the students to explore. As you said, we have um, sewing. So we have a serger, we have an embroidery machine, we have a sewing machine, we have routers, and we have woodworking tools and metalworking tools and 3D printers. So yeah. we run the gamut of um, you know, hard um, machine type things to yeah. you know, um, more, it's easier to be creative on the outcome side because you're looking at it. Mm. So I think that's what sets us apart here at DePaul. Yeah, I think the uh, variety of equipment there makes us less elitist, if I could use that word, in mm. the sense that I don't have to have a, this big background in something to come in and use a 3D printer that's printing in specialized metals. Right. Uh, I can walk in and I can, you know, depending upon what I've done in my background, say, I recognize a sewing machine, I recognize a drill press, or even I recognize pipe cleaners and paint. Yeah. And, and can make something with pipe cleaners and paint. So I think just having those things in there says everybody belongs. Right. Not just mm-hmm. the people that have completed four classes in, sure. in CAD design and you know structures and that to come in and be able to build something. Yeah. I think also because we have an authorization process to work on our machines that are student-led. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not, their peers are, peer is teaching them how to use the machines or how to use how to do something right. and I think that's very different than having a teacher yeah. teach them mm-hmm. how to do it I yeah. think they feel much more free to ask their friends you know because they don't have to you know th- worry about 
feeling stupid or asking a stupid question, you know. They just they just talk to their friends, and it's I think it's a very friendly atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the time I've been there, I've never heard any student put another student down or say their idea was stupid or any of those kinds of things. It's such a supportive environment. And I think it's an environment that lets them make things they want to make as opposed to what they have to make for their class. Right. So if I'm going to come in with my club and screen print a bunch of t-shirts, I'm making because my club needs these t-shirts, not right. that I have a class assignment that says I need to 3D print something. Sure. Yeah, there's, there's a, a multitude of contexts that you can approach the space with. Mm-hmm. You can approach the space as a student. You can approach the space as a student group leader. You can approach the space as just a person who wants to make a coat hanger for their, their room or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever else. Um, and you could have you could be the you could be one individual who uh, contains all of those contexts as, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so that's interesting because it seems to me that and I and I'm, I'm speaking from some some experience that there might be some questions then um, at a university level of what is the what is the value in this how does this how does this help us support our mission as an educational institution, right? What is what is the value in having uh, giving students the ability to make their own T-shirts or just to learn to sew or you know any any multitude of things that they can do in this space? And, and this is a question, you know, I, I think I'm selfishly asking this too, for not selfishly for other people who might be listening and, and thinking about doing this at their academic institution. How do you what what do you say to somebody who asks that question? Because th- those questions do occur. I think the biggest thing is that you. Um, become an interdisciplinary uh, program. Mm. We have students from all of our different colleges, whether it be the computing and digital media, business, um, science and health, they're all working together. So one of the things that they can do is um, work on things that aren't in isolation. Nobody, the real world doesn't work in isolation. Hmm. Everything's connected somehow, some way. And I think this gives them the opportunity to look at things in a a different light, um, consider other people's perspectives, um, wants and needs. So I think it teaches the the students um, in a very informal way all of the soft skills that they're going to need when they go to get a job. Hmm. Interesting. And and then I think there's another piece that uh, complements that in that uh, so often you're in classes where uh, you're not creating something, you may be responding, you may be answering questions, but to understand, to start to, uh, that uh, if you're going to make something, it, it's within a, a bigger system, so how do you ensure it works within a bigger system? How do you start to understand uh, constraints, trade-offs that you, that you have to make? Uh, the whole design test process, uh, uh, iterative thinking, building from a small concept and building up. So as they learn to do bigger and bigger projects by just making, I think that better prepares them for a world that is not uh, as you know uh, focused on one single topic as a class will be. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. So those those both complement each other. Yeah. Those comments in in that. Um, one, uh, students are exploring complex systems and how they fit into those complex systems, which makerspaces sh- should, if they're doing the right, the good job, um, uh, expose systems as things that are changeable and that you can work with. Uh, but also that um, that 
that's a soft skills thing too. How do I fit in within the system? I had a professor um, I was talking with from MIT show me a picture of like five, six years ago, one of their, uh, or maybe this was at an event where they were speaking. I, I can't remember anymore. It doesn't matter. Um, a picture of their capstone engineering classes, uh, if, you know, the event that they hold at the end of the year, and there were no physical things. Um, and that's because they weren't, they don't, you don't have, you don't have to do that anymore because you fit in this complex system, but you don't understand where you, so they design things and then those designs get sent over to China and a mold is made and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but if you don't understand the process that you're, the system that you're engaging in, uh, then you do lose all of those, those soft skills things. Those, those, um, if I send this project over here, how do I, I articulate to the manufacturing agent, um, all the different tolerances and things like that. If I myself am not familiar with the process of making that thing, and so it's like a, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think people don't have the opportunity to see something through where they started it all the way through to the end product. Yeah. Right. Most jobs are kind of where you're pigeonholed into your piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And so you you know your part really well, but if you don't know what's coming upstream or downstream. Right. You don't understand why you're doing things. You can't make suggestions on how to do it better because you're operating in a vacuum. And mm -hmm. I think you start thinking about your system a little bigger, too. If right. I do something and I have paint left over, yeah. you know, what does it mean to have waste? What does it mean yes. environmentally? <laughs> and if you just send it to China right. and some magic comes back, you have no sense of uh, any impacts on sustainability and you know, right. environmental, you know, many... Human uh, rights. Human rights. Right. And... You know, all of a sudden now you appreciate, boy, it's a lot of work to sew all these things together, <laughs> right. or, or um, it's you know it's tedious job to do this. And if I, you know, if I approach my problem a separate way, different way, as opposed to just saying somebody else is going to solve it. Right. So this is an interesting challenge that this poses then, because we're talking about understanding uh, systems. So we're talking ultimately about probably systems thinking, and and in that case, we're again going back to process. We're talking about process. And the, the problem that that introduces is that in an academic, at any ed educational institution, you have to assess something, and that's typically done by assessing outcome. Process is a different challenge, because how do you assess whether somebody is following the right process? So, so how do you, I guess this is going to get towards a, a larger ultimate question, which is how do you marshal support for these kinds of spaces in an educational institution? But if we could start with how do you, um, is there a way that you can talk about it that maybe maybe assessment isn't the right thing to talk about? Maybe there's a, a different lens to look at this through, or maybe there is something in assessment that, that connects to process. So what's the what's what's the magic? How, how do you do that? Well, traditional assessment is where you have your learning outcome, mm -hmm. and then you design a tool in order to measure whether or not students were successful in meeting that outcome desired outcome. Um, so it's very difficult. Students are afraid to fail. And yeah. if you've ever failed, you learn so much more from that than anything else. Mm. So they don't have the ability to grow or to look at things because they're afraid of failing, right? Everything mm. is grade focused. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think one of our challenges is to not do the you know the final assessment 
in order, but do it throughout their years to see how they've matured, how they've gained knowledge, how they're using that knowledge. So if you come in as a freshman in college and you are at this particular level, and then each year you get assessed on that same learning outcome, you can see somebody's trajectory and growth. And I think that's important and more important than that outcome because that's transferable. Mm. Right? You could put that in anything. Yeah, and as a non-faculty member, sure, yeah, sure. so I can say something you know, totally outside of tradition, uh, you know, you look at how we might assess uh, uh, student organizations and that we ask the students. So to some extent, the mm. assessment may be a self, a, a thing a student does on their own. Mm. Of uh, do I feel better about my abilities to take on some of the challenges of life? Mm. Because it's uh, they're they're not learning a process. They're learning a way to approach creating processes and yeah. you know using processes and learning processes yeah so you know uh, I think a big piece of it is uh, uh, how, how engaged is the student how, how confident does the student feel and yeah. it's really how we assess our student affairs yeah right and it doesn't happen overnight no you know you're taking a traditional assessment you're taking a snapshot mm -hmm. on a certain day you know at a certain point in the in their career where I think it's much more fair to the student mm -hmm. um, to assess them at numerous points in their career mm -hmm. to see you know whatever you're measuring how how well they are and you don't wait to the end to find out that you've you know not done a great job mm -hmm. right this way you're you're guided mm -hmm. you know to to do better yeah to become more fulfilled um, to try I, something that you may have been afraid yeah. to try before right. mm -hmm. I worry about our students. They, they, I taught a freshman class this past fall, and they are so anxious, and they are so focused on grades mm -hmm. that I sometimes think that they forget that learning is fun yeah. because they're so focused on getting that good grade. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is where it starts to become, the learn, the things like the makerspace become resources to faculty to put some of the fun into the learning. Right. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I like that. That um, I, I interviewed Aaron Hoover from uh, Higher Education Makerspaces Initiative um, recently, and one of the things uh, that he said, um, or that we had a conversation about, as well, is you know throughout their entire K through 12 education, um, they're being taught to take standardized tests, mm -hmm. uh, and it's all kind of uh, everything is geared around that now and so that that engenders a very linear way of thinking which is I there there is a question it has a right answer and there is one way to get to that right answer and so oftentimes I'll hear you know then, then they come to, to DePaul and I'll get similar questions of like just tell me what I need to do to get there and a makerspace engenders a way of thinking that's nonlinear it's that there are multiple ways to get to the the, the, the end solution uh, and that the end solution has multiple correct uh, states. And it could as well. be different than what you started out mm -hmm. thinking right. the end was. It could be different as right. as you've gone through your journey and learned different things. You can incorporate that into your end right. product. Well, it gets to innovations about breaking the rules, <laughs> and yeah. and uh, if you're you know been told through K through twelve, here are the rules, and here you follow them, and you and you know you get this ACT or SAT score at the end. 
and all of a sudden you realize you're supposed to be innovating. Right. Well, this is the place where you can break some rules. Yeah. So this is this is interesting because it goes back to I think how do you marshal support for spaces like this when they are um, they are a place w where it, are, that's not traditional to the institution and and the way that it, it people learn. Um, which it's not, he, even here at DePaul. And also, it's not traditional in the sense of how the learning, what context the learning happens in. In other words, um, traditionally, uh, it's the, I, I, have the, I am the, the wizard on the mountain, and I have the knowledge, and you will s sit here Sage for on the stage. Right, some <laughs> amount of time and listen to me, and then you will now be a receptacle for the knowledge that I've <laughs> passed on, right? And this is more saying, well, that might have its place, but, but what about having in an academic institution a place where you can follow your own intuition and that maybe there's something to learn just by engaging with materials in the real world and not just listening to, to people? And so how do, you, how do you talk about that in a way to, that convinces other people that this is of value and belongs here? I think there's two ways yeah. to do that. One is by the numbers because... You know, that's quantifiable. I can measure mm -hmm. increases by percent or number. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do here is we um, track unique visits. We track which um, colleges the students come from. We track if they're doing a homework project or if they're just doing a project because they want to do it. Um, so those numbers we can give to the administration and they can see how well spent the dollars are by the engagement of the of the student body mm. and we also you know faculty and staff even staff use the the space right so what's nice about it kind of makes it more egalitarian mm -hmm. in the makerspace right because the students are teaching the faculty and the students are teaching the staff mm -hmm. and staff and faculty have a nice um, interaction so but the numbers are important to mm -hmm. the financial people Right? Mm -hmm. ROI. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, being the financial person, <laughs> yeah. uh, that uh, when you look at uh, some of the um, you know battles as colleges compete with each other, of you know I have a climbing wall and I have you know this fancy athletic you know it's just uh, this uh, war of spending more and more money on amenities for mm -hmm. students. This is a huge return on investment because mm -hmm. in the big scheme of things, it's not that expensive of a space. For the amount, for the number of students that right. attend, that participate, the number of repeat visits, right. and the comments that come out of students. So I think, I think it's easy to, relatively easy to sell to an administration, by uh, uh, trying it out and showing the the success of it. Uh, not again, not being a faculty, I think one of the ways to sell it to faculty is what I'm seeing happening here which is becoming very broad in the definition of what making is. So as we incorporate a greenhouse uh, into right. mm -hmm. a maker space, now right. all of a sudden you have a, a, a cohort of faculty that see where their passion is right. being, uh, being available to more than the, the students than their major and their, mm -hmm. and their discipline, right. and, um, and really being able to take what they like to do to the next level. So I, I think to some extent mm -hmm. in selling if, if I want to sell an idea at the university, I find the faculty that are yeah. really excited about advancing their area and, yeah. the, and the connection mm -hmm. and get, get them engaged. And I, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think, Jay, you've been successful doing a lot of that 
with uh, getting everyone from physics to you know uh, uh, science, science yeah. In, yeah, in the loop. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems as well like you know maybe a university is building a rock climbing wall or, or something else for an amenity, but the rock climbing wall really has one purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a makerspace has, it's an amenity, but it's also um, a, a educational support. Mm -hmm. It's a, a resource. And so it's almost like you're able to double or triple dip on, mm -hmm. on that investment um, because it serves so many different uh, purposes. Well, remember when we started building the makerspace down here, we had faculty say, well, how is that going to support curriculum? Right. They, you know, they were faculty who had been around for a while. They'd been teaching in the classroom and sees themselves more as the sage on the stage. Right. Um, so they just, it was beyond their comprehension about how this space could possibly support curriculum. Yeah. And today we run, faculty have brought classes into the yeah. into the space. They, they teach there. They have all their homework is done there. Yeah. Um, we're building a new degree in industrial design that came out of the makerspace, yeah. you know, which we'll be able to support it in the first few years until we need the more mm -hmm. advanced industrial design. Yeah. It's, it's on my wish list again for yeah. track. Um, so I think you, know, you can easily show now where, how it supports curriculum and how it supports learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit looking forward and, and what we're working on. Um, and and so, you know the the makerspace stuff that we're we're doing up in our, our Lincoln Park campus that complements what we're um, you know what we're doing down here as well. Um, so, so what's we're growing, right? There's going to be a, a whole new um, makerspace, 3,600 square feet, and one of the biggest challenges I've always found is, with the, with these kinds of uh, projects is uh, that and I, I imagine anybody who's listening to this and is at at a, an educational institution might face is uh, we have a lot of money uh, for not a lot but we have a, a, a sum of money for this project and we need you to spend it now and figure this out now and not mess up right um, I've encountered a lot of even k-12 institutions that have that that problem so so how do we ensure that we don't mess up when the entire context of the institution is geared around do it now it needs to be done quickly because it's a because that's how money gets spent right mm -hmm. so what's the yeah I think it's almost hard to mess it up I mean yeah. I think you'd have to work very going back to <laughs> there's more than one process that you can use and I think you'd have to work very hard to put together something that wouldn't be exciting mm. to some contingent. So, if, you know, if you're worried about do I get one more of these and one less of those, sure. it's probably to some extent arbitrary for the first go around. Sure. And uh, without committing to any future funds, <laughs> I would say that uh, if you deliver value, demonstrable value, right the funds will be there for iteration two, three, and four, right. because uh, it'll, it'll be a, a proven success. Right. And I, I think that comes about because the students are so involved with mm -hmm. everything. Mm. Right? So when we were building the makerspace down here, before we even started, we had gotten a group of students who were interested, and we put the call out to everybody. Yeah. So we had computer science students, we had graphic design, we had user experience, mm -hmm. um, networking, 
So they, we had buy-in from the get-go mm -hmm. because they helped, they named it. Mm -hmm. um, they helped pick out the furnishings, right? So right. they picked out the color scheme. They picked out the type of furniture that we were going to have in there. Um, they made it their space. And now we're recreating that same process with the students up in Lincoln Park. I mean, we have a very um, bipolar campus, right? You're either a Lincoln Park or a Loop person, right? We right. don't have a lot of interchange or interaction between the, the two. Students will identify as being one or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that this current makerspace has done is it's brought Lincoln Park students down here mm -hmm. because yeah. they really are interested in it. Yeah. Um, so we do have students from Lincoln Park interacting with our loop students right. and we got them together and they're coming up with new names right. um, we just met with the um, furniture design mm -hmm. um, company today and you know while we're you know guiding it we're not the final sayers on right. what what are the colors going to be what's the name going to be right. um, we are looking for a connection between the two you know but not so much in color, but in textures. Textures of fabrics, mm -hmm. um, you know, colors on the floor. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully, you know, cross that chasm between the two groups of students. Yeah. So we've got these two spaces. One, one that doesn't exist yet, but will soon. Uh, another that, that um, you know, obviously does exist already. And then, you know, looking forward, there's, you know, this idea now, Betty, you mentioned the greenhouse, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, that we have at DePaul, of, of kind of um, bringing other spaces into the fold. And the way that I've always looked at the lab is that it is a, um, an institution that, uh, so if you look at like organizational change theories, one of the, the if you want to change a very large organization, you spin off some small group that de develops its own culture and then oftentimes what goes wrong then is that that culture does not get reintegrated back into the, the community. Uh, for instance, charter schools were, you know, in, in part created so that you could um, uh, develop uh, uh, this new knowledge set of how to teach outside of the traditional education, but then it would get brought back in. And well, of course, that's just never happened now. Um, but, but what I am seeing here at DePaul and what I'm guessing people who are in other educational institutions might be wondering is okay we're growing this and to me what it means is that we're, we're now integrating the culture into into the body of, of the organization so how do you it, it first of all is that a correct assumption but also if it is then is that a way how, how do you use these spaces as a way to leverage institutional change um, more broadly what's the what are the <laughs> not step one step two step three necessarily but is there a is there a a process to that I'd say on the the business side of a yeah. university the way we've been traditionally structured makes it difficult because uh, something like a makerspace belongs to a specific college or even right. more so a specific department and uh, we're not really set up for creating entities right. that that bridge those uh, uh, business structures Right. And uh, and I think one of the things that's interesting is you know taking the makerspace or sets of setting grouping makerspaces and trying to 
uh, turn them into institutional entities that are open to everybody right. and, and let everybody who's interested collaborate. And, uh, and you know, I think we're experiencing not problems in the sense of lack of support, but problems right. in the sense of we're not uh, business-wise structured mm. to make that happen. And uh, that we need to invent new, new structures to support institutional entities that are like networks of, of maker spaces. But, uh, but those mm. are easy. I mean, they're, when you're doing them, they can be pain in the neck problems to solve, but they're easy problems to solve. But once you solve those problems, then, the, then the, you, you've got participation from all different kind of en entities within. So if a music student is sitting next to a, a chemistry student who's sitting next to someone's there that's making stuff for a student organization, uh, the, cu the culture moves because it's not an isolated group that needs to pull it back in. It's every representatives from all groups coming in and bringing the culture back with them. Right. But I think you'll see that happen more easily on the student level oh, and yeah. not on the faculty level. Mm. I mean, I, I do think many faculty still operate under the silo mentality mm -hmm. that they are the experts in their field and they want to remain in, in their field because that's where their comfort zone is because they're the experts. So I think faculty could actually learn from the students on how to be interdisciplinary. And I know that's a push here at DePaul is for interdisciplinary um, programs. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one place where a diverse group of faculty can meet and collaborate and come up with these new programs to um, offer to our students. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the place that, uh, that they go, if you're a faculty member, you, you might go do it because it says it's okay to do this. It's okay yeah. to work with other people. Um, and it provides the, the, you know, the resources and the context uh, to do that, which m maybe is more difficult to find at, at other places. And what I'm really hearing is we almost function like a library, except we're not a library. Mm -hmm. We are uh, another resource. For, you know, just for instance, we get phone calls now from people who are just looking for other, you know, I, I, can you tell me where to check out a camera? Mm -hmm. and, well, it's not here, but now they know us as a, as a, as a resource that that, um, that they can use to connect to other other things. And, and that same thing could probably be said about people. It's a place where you can go to connect to, to other people, to other disciplines. And and so, and, and I know we've talked about this a lot and we're probably getting close to the end of the, of the um, interview here, so this might be a good place to end too. Um, is that something uniquely, uh, or rather that a liberal arts can, institution can do really well, which is um, bring uh, you know, the humanities to engineering and to making, to mm -hmm. this technocratic culture, to, to bring whatever other background. And I wonder if this kind of connects back to what we were talking about in some way before about craft and making as well, which is we're, we have this technocratic thing, but we're bringing all of, all of the other um, necessary disciplines to it um, because of course engineering is important but you can, you need designers and you need artists and you need people who think about how technology works best for us so is that is that something that we're like un uniquely growing into here at DePaul is that um, we're you know work at this head with these spaces and, and how can we kind of plant our flag in in maker spaces you know more broadly and globally well I think 
Um, one of DePaul's goals is to be innovative. We have a whole innovation fund mm -hmm. um, that is available to faculty to put in proposals um, to do things like this, right? So I think DePaul recognizes that we need to be um, having students be creators, innovators, um, even entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? Because they could take something that they made Right and, and commercialize it if if that's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, so I think you know I think we're blending mm -hmm. all the best parts of the university in in a space that all levels of people who are on campus feel comfortable in. Mm. Yeah, and and I think with anything new, there's an adoption curve that mm -hmm. that happens, and right now you're with the early adopters who are feeling right. comfortable with that, but. Uh, as it becomes more and more apparent that, uh, well, and I come from an engineering background and we spend a lot of time talking about the T-shaped professional. Yes. That you can be very, very strong in your you know, specific area of expertise, but if you, which is the, the uh, vertical part of the T, but the horizontal part of the T is the, uh, are all the other skills that sometimes get called soft skills, but it's understanding the, you know, uh, history and humanities and, uh, uh, interpersonal relationships and uh, interpersonal communications and uh, project organization that uh, that those are that people who have expertise in those areas also need the the awareness of the technology piece right so in so many ways uh, the makerspace what we're doing with the Coleman Entrepreneurship Center is recognizing that students that will come out very strong in this particular area you know let's say like music, right. also need to understand technology because they're going to be interfacing with it. May well need to understand entrepreneurship because they may be, have their own business. Sure. And uh, so I think the, that these things will get adopted simply because there's going to be, um, uh, and, and liberal arts institutions have a real opportunity to lead here in utilizing makerspaces because they're not focused on the vertical part of the T, as so many engineering schools are, which mm -hmm. is how do I work with a very specific material to make a very unique thing, you know, solving a problem, right. uh, very specific technical problem. They're, the liberal arts institutions are able to pull it in to, to uh, address the range of, uh, of all the dis disciplines that, are, that our students are going to have to at least be comfortable working adjacent to in their future careers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, that's a good place to end, I think. But what I like to do before I finish is usually ask people if there's anything that they want to point people who are listening at. Um, you know, whether that's a, a website or, uh, you know, a project that you're interested in or that people should pay attention to. What's, what's happening either with, with you or at DePaul that people should know about? I think one of the things that we talked about with the students um, was to film the building of the new makerspace up in Lincoln Park, so mm -hmm. they could watch it, and then at the end we could, you know, do one of those speed up things, and you yeah. could like in two minutes watch it go from beginning yeah. to end. Um, so I'm excited about rolling it out to a whole new set of students okay. and faculty. So people should pay attention to maybe like the irl.depaul.edu <laughs> website where, where all that stuff <laughs> might go, um, or um, 
Newsline just had an article about us. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you are a subscriber to DePaul's Newsline newsletter, <laughs> check that out. Um, anything else, Betty? No, I, you, you took what I was going to say, <laughs> oh, Jay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, Betty, Terry, thank you so much. And um, I, I hope people, uh, you know, get out of, of this as much as I, I, I get out of it, which is, um, you know, under, understanding a little bit more uh, how this fits into some broader ecosystem. So. And if you have any questions, you can always email any, any yeah. of us. Yeah, yeah. Paul makes us shockingly public yes. <laughs> as far as our information is concerned. Okay. And that about wraps it up for episode 19 of This Should Work and our second podcast interview for the Educational Makerspace series. Thanks so much to Betty Shanahan and Terry Steinbach for joining us on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you're getting as much out of this as uh, I am, too. This educational Makerspace series has really been pretty interesting, and I'm looking forward to uh, the next couple interviews that we have lined up. Um, One is with Jeff Solon, who runs the Makerspaces at Lane Tech which is uh, a, a school within Chicago Public School System. And, and another is with Sasha Neary, who runs Harold Washington Library's Makerspace. Very, very popular makerspace in the loop. Um, and I always enjoy talking with Sasha. She's such a, a, a wonderful, curious person. So um, look forward to those in the next couple parts of our Educational Makerspace series. And uh, as always, like, subscribe, share, leave us a comment and some love on iTunes. And check us out and all the other episodes we have on shouldworkmedia.com. Okay, thanks for listening. And until next time, do good things.